Well, greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast, Season 1, Episode 57. So excited to be here again um, with our friend Dick Foth, and we're going to spend some time learning from him on Back Channel with Foth, and then we'll jump into our interview with Jason Georges, um, where we'll discuss missiological maturity and his book, 3D Gospel and Ministering in Honor, Honor and Shame Cultures, and uh, looking forward to that interview. Before we get in, um, Dick, so great to have you back here on the podcast today. Thanks, Aaron. Wonderful to see you there in your abode in Madagascar. <laughs> Even though this is audio, I can see you. That's right. And well, and you, Dick's got to see the boxes that have never moved um, for all these months. They're still there. So, Dick, one of the first questions is we, we talked today, one of the first questions a listener sent in was, um, what qualities do you look for when you're building a team? You know, I think the, the one of the things that has surfaced these days a lot is uh, what I will call cultural chemistry. Hmm. That is, do the do the persons that are being invited to the team get not just the vision of what we're trying to do, but how we're trying to do it. Hmm. Um, the great challenges in teams is not that they don't have common vision. Yeah. The great challenge I've experienced in teams is in how you get from point A to point B. Okay. That's where the tension comes. Hmm. And it, and it can even cause a split, you know, the classic Paul and Barnabas story. Yeah. They're, they're both wanting to share the good news about Jesus, but you got this problem with this kid and you know, so they had different, <laughs> Uh, processes by which they were to achieve the goal. So that would be, that would be a place for me to start. Okay. The second thing would be initiative. Hmm. Uh, I want to work with people who are self-starters um, that, that they get up in the morning and they've been thinking about this. Yeah. And um, one of my favorite stories about our friend Vern that we've had on before uh, is I was in his office at the Pentagon and I asked him, what makes you want to get up in the morning? And he said, I wake up every morning. Of course, here he is running the Navy, $120 billion a year, and 800,000 personnel and all this stuff. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's dead serious. I was sitting with some friends, and I just asked him the question out of the blue. And he said, you know, Dick, I wake up every morning realizing that I lead the most powerful Navy that has sailed the seven seas in the history of mankind. Hmm. And then he paused and his eyes welled up and he said, and, and I want to make it better. Wow. Wow. So I want to work with people who start themselves. Hmm. I don't want to be a taskmaster. I, I hopefully am a leader, but I don't need to be a boss in that regard. Uh, third thing would be, um, I just, I want to be with people who don't just start, but I want to be with people who follow through. Hmm. I've worked with numbers of people and I know what they look like because I am one of these. Mm. I've worked with numbers of people who start things but don't finish, mm. who don't uh, follow through either because they don't have the discipline or they don't have the um, experience mm -hmm. to, to know how to track something. So I think follow through, whether, whether the follow through is I have this plan or that person comes to you and says, um, help, help me with this plan. I need some help. Yeah. 
And then finally, I think uh, the fourth thing would be the capacity to connect the dots. And not everybody has this. I was reading an article, article by Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple recently, and he said, he said, I'm looking for shallow. And I said, you know, I'm reading this article. I said, what does he mean by that? He said, well, to have somebody who can stand at 30,000 feet and they're not drilling down on a specialty area, but mm. they see how various things connect. Hmm. That provides impetus to the enterprise yeah. because they see how different arenas, different ideas connect. So those would be the four things, cultural chemistry, initiative, follow through, and the capacity to connect the dots. That's amazing. And in some of those, do you want an individual to have all of those, um, Dick, or can they maybe, do you have a team that might bring different aspects to the table or? Yeah, I don't, I don't know very many people who have uh, all of those. Yeah. Uh, and, or uh, they, they may have those, but not an equal measure. Okay. And um, so I think understanding that, and being willing to um, work with that is an important thing. But in a, in a, in a um, onboarding process, as they call it today in HR, in an onboarding <laughs> process, you can, you can uh, uh, get a sense for those yeah. in, in no small part by looking at track record. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Dick, the second question that uh, a listener sent in, um, it's in relation to team building and leadership skills. What advice would you give a younger team team leader whose country of assignment has just received a transfer of an older veteran missionary um, who has served for many years in a different country and culture? What advice would you give the older missionary going into that country? So this is this is the older missionary or the or the younger missionary or both. I think he. I think the the listener is asking for both. What would you? What advice would you give the younger missionary? And then what advice would you give the older missionary? So for the for the younger missionary in country, and again, I've never been in that particular position. Right. I have been in that position in a local congregation. I would say for the younger missionary, um, to to adopt the position, which is not hard, of learner. Hmm. Uh, Fix a fix a really good meal with a good dessert. Sit down, start asking questions, and listen. Yeah. And the questions I would ask is have to do with your story. And you would expect me to say this because I'm huge on story because that's who we are. Yeah. You know, you've heard me say this before. I'm 78 and a half years of story. If you don't want to know that or parts of that. Don't talk to me about loving me like Jesus. So mm-hmm. I think this, I think to be able to when especially an older person, you know, we may not we may not we might not have many years going forward, yeah. but we've got a lot of years full of stories, and the more we tell them, the better they get. Some, <laughs> <laughs> some, some of them are even true, you know. <laughs> Ruth, when she hears my story, says, You know, it's a little a little different than the last time I heard to tell the a little more elaboration, but somewhere in that story, there's probably a nugget of truth. <clears throat> so I think to ask questions about what was it like when you first started? Yeah. What were your biggest challenges? What were your greatest fears when you first started? Yeah. Um, how has that changed over the years? So I would, mi- I would mind that uh, treasure trove. 
too oftentimes a younger person will look at an older person and say, well, those guys don't even know how to open their computer. What do they have to tell me? Well, opening one's computer has very little to do with the quality of a life. Yeah. And so I would encourage that. And I would encourage them to tell their story that's not just about missions, hmm. uh, that, that has to do with their roots and what shaped them in their in their early years and how did they sense a call to come yeah. to Africa or wherever it is? Yeah. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, I would adopt the stance of a student in yeah. that regard. Then in terms of the older missionary going into the country, I think, I think if I'm the older guy and I've been in this situation in the situation I currently am, where I came 12 years ago at the age of 66, my question was, and I don't know if this is the perfect question, but it's a good one, is how can I serve you best? Hmm. I'm, not, I'm not the lead dog here. Hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm part of the team. I'm a colleague. And I won't, um, I promise not to just wear you out with my war stories hmm. that I retell 12 times in a month. <laughs> don't do that. Um, if I were the older missionary, I would say to the younger person, tell me your thoughts in this moment. Mm. What's your vision? What are your fears? Yeah. What are, where are the places that you feel there are gaps? Yeah. And uh, I, want to, I want to help you win yeah. in this. And if you win, I win. You know, it's yeah. just like a marriage yeah. in that regard. And then I would ask, what can I pray for? Hmm. What are the what are the places that I can be praying in this season as we're working together? Good to you. Always gold, Dick. Always gold, and uh, really appreciate your your wisdom and insight. And um, we're going to go ahead and jump into the interview with Jason Georges on missiological maturity. There's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here today with a new friend, Jason Georges. And um, we're going to have a great conversation about a pertinent subject um, for the majority of the audience. So Jason, welcome to the podcast. Could you go ahead and share a little bit about yourself before we jump into our conversation? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Appreciate the chance to be with you here today. Yeah, a little bit about myself. Uh, Originally from America, and I was trained and educated there. Uh, before going overseas, and we have lived uh, in Central Asia in refugee communities and now in the Middle East. It's all working primarily in these contexts of honor shame cultures and trying to figure out what does the gospel look like uh, in these contexts. And that has led me to kind of a new reading of scripture, a new way of seeing scripture, um, as we'll talk about in our time today. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Jason, it's a, it's fascinating. You know, I'm a boy that was born and raised in Wally Ford, West Virginia, small town um, perspective. Where did you get this uh, passion that to address the Bible through a lens of honor and shame culture? What brought you to that um, uh, conversation and that, that point of reference? Yeah, well, I mean, I joke that all good missiological ideas are the result of a lot of mistakes. And <laughs> It was the result of uh, many mistakes of uh, seeing a look on someone's face that, wow, what I just said did not make sense to that person. Or, you know, that the two plus two did not equal four in their brain. 
and something else was going on or hearing things from them that just made no sense to me. Um, and so trying to really, as we were in Central Asia, trying to come and understand like what makes people tick? Um, mm. You know, how are they understanding their identity? How are they understanding relationships, morality? How are they making decisions? What's good, what's bad? What are their value systems? Um, and, and it's pretty obvious, it, it wasn't like mine, I knew that, but trying to really understand it from their perspective. Um, and then it was kind of in that, uh, and uh, starting to realize how honor and shame made people tick. And then um, I was also uh, fortunate enough to be a biblical studies major in university and okay. had good professors there that tried to help us kind of unlock the biblical backgrounds, or I should say the cultural backgrounds of the Bible. Um, and so I was introduced to honor and shame as kind of a, that's the way people thought 2,000 years ago. Um, but then I started to realize, like, wait a second, this is what's going on around me. <laughs> that's very, very fascinating. Very fascinating. So, hey, as I, I read through your books and, um, and following you online um, and about honor and shame, what are some of the values of an honor and shame culture? And how do they affect how one hears the good news, how one relates to others, and how one should communicate? Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot packed into those questions. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, honor, shame, culture. It's just a just let me uh, perhaps define that here for a second. And so it's just an outside term, what we say, ethic term uh, for describing how these cultures operate. No one says, you know, oh, I'm honor, shame, culture. It's not a <laughs> self-definition. And so the way I describe it, it's kind of like using the phrase right handed person. You know, I'm right-handed. That means I usually, you know, use my right hand. I write with my right hand. I throw a ball with my right hand. But it doesn't mean I don't have a left hand. It just means I kind of prefer my right hand. So honor, shame cultures are kind of default a little bit more towards on these values of honor and shame when it comes to understanding morality. And that's going to be compared to more Western cultures that are a little bit more guilt and innocence oriented. Hmm. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that they're exclusive or they're black and white categories. It's just kind of a rough orientation. So about your question, honor and shame, how does this pop up? Probably the biggest way is that honor and shame cultures are quite collectivistic. They're not individualistic. So, you know, they're always thinking about the group. How can I bring honor to the group? How can I bring a good name to my family? How can I, you know, carry my father's name forward in a respectable way? Uh, what are other people in the community thinking about me? Um, they're not thinking about so much of, you know, what do I want to do? How can I bring pleasure to myself? Or, you know, how can I fulfill my own dreams? Those are more secondary um, compared to the interests of the group. So one is collectivistic. Um, and then uh, I would say another one might be, you know, hospitality is the way it plays out. People are very generous and very giving um, as well. And that is a way of building relationships. And uh, as you give gifts, you make friends. And uh, those sort of social networks or those ties of reciprocity are very important in society because, after all, who you know is who you are. Hmm. Um, and so those are um, some basic ways of how honor and shame plays out. Uh, hmm. You can, you had a list of questions there, Aaron. Did yeah, you said up. you talked about how one relates to others, and in, in in your writings, you talk about eight commandments about how one relates to others. Could you unpack that just a little bit? The those eight commandments. Yeah, yeah. So the idea comes from this idea that uh, we, uh, as we communicate who we are and how we relate to people, we need to do so in such a way that makes sense uh, to other people. 
Um, and so one of these, take for example, this topic of finances and money. Um, this is always a very uh, challenging question, uh, issue. Uh, yeah, uh, you have felt that, we all have. And uh, what often happens is Westerners uh, really assume a default orientation of autonomy. Everyone needs to be autonomous, have their own finances, and we're kind of reluctant to share. But in these collectivistic cultures, it's more the idea of patronage. Um, and that is, if you have resources, you're expected to help other people out. And in return, you're going to be honored and esteemed for that. Now, that kind of goes against our grain. Um, you know, I call it a financial friendship. And in America, that's an oxymoron. You, you can't have a financial <laughs> friendship, right? But in all of these, you know, parts of the world, your friendships are financial and your finances are based on your, your relationships. And so I talk about, you know, two of the eight commandments are one is to be a patron. You know, if you do have resources and you can share, help the people. You know, we're so worried about this, uh, uh, this word dependence uh, in our line of work. I think we forget how to um, be a generous person. And then on the flip side, um, we need to also be a client. There are, uh, especially when we are guests in another culture, there are many times in which we have needs and we need to uh, learn how to put ourselves under another person who has maybe authority or connections to help us out. And it can be a really strategic way of solving problems, whether it be, you know, getting a visa or maybe reconciling with someone who is offended with you. Um, so that's one example of uh, trying to enter into relationships in a way that makes sense to them. And I would actually say that patronage, it, for them, it's a form of morality. It's not hmm. just economic, um, but it, it's a way of understanding morality and ethical relationships. Yeah. So that's kind of a some ideas there. No, I, and it just makes me think it's obviously I was laughing. Um, you know, I, we started our work in Burkina Faso and, um, you know, that's how they used to, the, on the whole honor shame thing. They would put people's name in the newspaper because they were in these large families. And so that's the shame of putting the family way Drago in the newspaper. Everyone was in that large family would feel the shame. And it was that, that social power to keep people in this, this certain environment. Yeah. And then you talked about finances. Um, you know, I think that's a struggle and it's, it's still, I'm 20 years into this and it's still something I'm learning more and more about every day. How, how does this play out? Say um, when it comes to finances and um, we're talking to someone finances and we want to get, we give money and we think it's going to go certain to certain way of certain things. And then it ends up going to something different. We look, as you talked about truth, guilt, and it we want the truth. How does that play out in an honor shame culture? And if we persist to get the truth, are we dividing friendships or are we creating friendships or how does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one thing I have found, uh, it, when it comes to honor shame culture, this issue of patronage is the most common kind of sticking point for people. Um, so I wrote a book, kind of a follow-up uh, called Ministering in Patronage Cultures to try to spell that out a little bit more. And to help people see that, you know, it, it is a biblical option to function as a patron. But at the same time, I don't have all the answers. Um, yeah. There are very difficult situations. Um, <laughs> so uh, about this, um, one thing I'd, I'd maybe try to reframe your question. You know, we talk yeah. about truth and, uh, you know, these collectivistic cultures believe in truth, but they're going to be a little bit more focused on being true to the relationship. Um, mm. as opposed to being true to um, certain abstract or wow. propositional ideas. That's um, good. And again, it's not to minimize one or the other. Um, you know, we need to have grace and truth. 
Um, and so how can we have the relationship and, you know, the right thing going on uh, uh, together? Um, and so, yeah, those are always um, challenging things. You know, you have to often, um, you know, be aware if you bring up or expose certain people, they're probably going to feel so ashamed that they're going to feel not just shame upon themselves, but they're going to feel like they um, they insulted you as a patron, as the one who is their cover or provided for them, that they're going to kind of assume that, that you don't want to have a relationship with them anymore. Um, I've seen that happen, and then people walk away. And then my interpretation of that was often, oh, yeah, they only wanted me for my money. Hmm. Um, but in hindsight, I feel like I've learned maybe a more generous um, understanding of that is they just saw me as not caring about the relationship and they saw me as someone who was exposing them um, and not trying to protect them or cover them or provide for them. Wow. Um, wow. That's, so very, maybe, yeah. that's super, super insightful. And then how does that, how does that affect the way um, in your writings? It, it was, it was like in the honesty, it was a light bulb that came on for me, uh, how someone would perceive the gospel story or the gospel message. Cause you talk about that um, in your writings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a big thing. Uh, where do we start on this? Um, well, let's start with the idea of God <laughs> and yeah. who he is. Uh, and so often we kind of, uh, in Western theology, God is foremost a judge. He, God is obviously a judge, um, but he's also more than that. He's a king. He's a good father. There's these relational terms or concepts that can get used. Um, and as a result, sin is not just breaking a law, but it's breaking a relationship. You know, it's, hmm. it's dishonoring the king. It's not giving our father the, the respect that he deserves. And so when we start helping people understand, you know, what is wrong with my heart? What's wrong with, with you know, my condition as a human? It's not simply about rules that need to get punished, you know, to, to vindicate the sense of justice. But in reality, at the end of the day, it, it, my ultimate problem is I have not glorified God. I have not honored him. And so framing sin in a way that it, I would actually say it's a bit more biblical, but it's contextual for them. And then that helps us to kind of lead to, okay, well, what does salvation look like? Well, um, salvation, it's, a, it's not simply a forgiveness of sins, um, though it is that, but it's also that restoration of relationship. We are brought wow. into a new family. We are given a new name, a new identity. Um, and as a result, we, in essence, have a new honor. We receive honor, not from our earthly family, not from our status, you know, not from the cell phone that we have or certain connections that we have, but ultimately my honor comes from God and helping people, you know, pursue that honor that comes from God. Hmm. So that's what I would say, you know, trying to reimagine what it looks like, uh, sin and salvation through this lens of honor, shame values. Are there some common mistakes that, that you've seen boys from Wally Ford, we'll use me, boys from Wally Ford, West Virginia, that would come to a context. Are there good intention, good heart, um, one, uh, one of the, but some, maybe some common you've seen, say, you, you've worked and served, you said, ah, that's a common stumbling block. I've seen people, they got a good heart and they really want to, they really are there to, to share, but at the same time, they, they, these seem to be common stumbling blocks. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think just a, a, a common one is a, um, a very negative view of honor, um, in our Western kind of civilization or Western education, we view honor as something that's like outdated, old fashioned. That was like the medieval knights who cared about honor. 
you know, but now we have, we're, we're above that. We've, you know, so we're more civilized than that. And so as a result, anytime we kind of bump up against honor or get a whiff of it, we kind of, um, you know, poo-poo it or look down on it and dismiss it. Um, or we tell people, you know, we'll, we'll tell believers in these majority role contexts, like, oh, don't care about honor, you know, just believe in the gospel. Well, the fact is, it's interesting, Jesus, what he accused the Pharisees of is he, he accused them of not seeking glory from God. And so, you know, glory is of honor. He's saying you seek it from one another, but not from God. You're pursuing it in all the wrong ways. And so Jesus actually wanted the Pharisees to pursue honor and glory, but in a, in a radically different way, right? In this right. cruciform way. So I would say just kind of um, maybe having a, a negative view of honor and um, everything that unfolds from that, you know, we can develop a critical uh, attitude of that, you know. A classic example is maybe you go over to someone's house and they don't, they're not at the same economic level as you, but then they put everything on the table for you. Hmm. You know, they pull everything out of the fridge and they, they just go over the top with their generosity. And I remember feeling um, that that was very wasteful or, um, yeah, I, it just didn't make sense. That seemed very wrong or I didn't want to receive their food. Um, I didn't want to receive their generosity. And I didn't, and in essence, I was saying, you don't have any honor to give me. Like wow. I'm above you. Don't try to relate to me in that way. But wow. then I have learned that the, the best thing I could do is try to receive that. Um, and their focus isn't so much on the, the, the material resources or their economics, but they are using this opportunity to build a relationship because who knows, sometime in the future, that relationship might come in handy for them and they can kind of call in on some of that social capital. Wow. Um, so I would say, you know, allow, allow for honor to um, happen or to be received and exchanged in the relationship. Wow. And does, you know, me as an example, again, grew up in, a, in Wally Ford and we were taught to be independent. You know, does independence, because what I hear you saying is that this collective culture is more of a, maybe dependence is not the right word. You're the you're expert on it than me, but it seems more like an integrated culture versus coming from a Western United States, West Virginia culture of mine. It was more an independent, uh, I can do it on my own, pull my stuff, I'm about bootstraps, this is all mine. Is that an adequate, um, or, is that, or is that adequate representation or not? Yeah, the word I like to use is interdependence. Okay. And so usually, you know, we get stuck between these, the dichotomy of independence and dependence. And neither of them are very ideal. We're more familiar with independence, but independence is like the worst thing. Um, but I think there's um, a healthy model of moving people towards interdependence, of caring hmm. for one another's needs, um, of loving one another and serving one another in hmm. an interdependent way. Wow, that's good. That's good. One of the other things is I was reading um, one of your books. You taught, You said that, I just frame this in a question. How does neglecting of honor, shame, and Western theology ultimately lead to shallow forms of Christianity as we trust God for forgiveness of our sins, but bypass Christ's work of absolving our shame? Hmm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I want to be clear on this as well. Anyone who grows up in the West and has only encountered Western theology can truly be saved and can love the Lord and be discipled in that. Um, so it's not that we're looking to replace something or to, you know, um, do a 180. But I think there are obvious ways um, in which, you know, our, 
our perspective is just limited. Um, mm. And I think we can all agree, you know, that we can, but from a global conversation, we can have a richer theology. Yeah. And we've all learned things from our brothers and sisters around the world. Um, yeah. And I think this is one of those areas. And I think one way it plays out, um, to be honest, in our Protestant tradition, um, we have a hard time figuring out ethics because we are so worried that someone's going to try to earn their works or try to earn their salva salvation by works. Hmm. That ethics is kind of a tack on um, to like, okay, you've been saved now, you know, uh, go, go do some good things. But really viewing um, salvation and ethics, I feel like this reframing of honor helps us bring it together. And what I say by this is salvation is essentially getting a new honor code. It's learning how to value what is valuable, and that obviously is God and the things of God. And so salvation, it's a turning away from a false honor code, from a false way of achieving our, our identity and our status, and trusting in God for that. And that involves, you know, a, a new framing of understanding what is good, what is honorable, what reflects God's glory in creation. Um, and then another way is, I think um, we're starting to realize that, you know, shame is prevalent in all of us. It's not just, a, you know, an Arab issue or an African issue or an Asian issue, but it's an Adam and Eve problem, right? Mm -hmm. So shame entered the scene in Genesis 3, and we all deal with it. And, uh, you know, as I have worked in these contexts, probably the biggest things I have learned about is the way that I have struggled. I myself struggle with shame hmm. and learning how to appropriate the gospel for that. Um, and so I think we're starting to realize that. And I think there are, there's become a ton of books and different resources about this idea of shame um, in, in American context. You know, I think of Brene Brown and yeah. um, these helpful TED Talks that she has. Um, but it's interesting. A lot of it comes from the realm of psychology, which I, which can be helpful. But there's um, still a lack of theological resources on this idea of shame. Hmm. Um, and so I think what happens is we're not ultimately equipped to address the issue theologically. Hmm. Um, and so what happens is, you know, we'll, uh, I think, yeah, Job says, I think in chapter 10, he says, even though I am forgiven of my sins, I am still covered in shame. Wow. And I think there are many believers like that, um, you know, uh, in the West and all around the world whose sins have been forgiven, but they still carry that burden of shame. And they're just, they haven't been given the theological kind of resources or the, the discipleship to uh, free themselves from that shame and um, walk in light of God's honor. Yeah. Jason, how would you define shame? Because is there is there a central? You've mentioned Benet Brown. I think she it's more she similar defines it is the the fact that it's not it's me that's bad. It's not and guilt is when my actions are bad. It, would you follow that certain line or or what would you? How would you define shame? Yeah, um, that's the million dollar question. Um, so <laughs> what <laughs> what is shame? Everyone knows what the word shame is, but then you know we can't pin it down. Um, yeah, I would say that. <laughs> that's one part of it you know there's something fundamentally wrong with me um and there's this deep sense of insufficiency of um a fear of being exposed of other people finding out about it um i would just add to it um so that's that that definition comes from a more of a psychological approach mm -hmm. i would just add more of an anthropological aspect of it too and realizing that shame and honor um are always uh more of a collective idea as well so you can think of it as like your group reputation or your status in the community. Um, but that's always experienced very personally. 
Um, yeah. And so, you're, you know, shame, it's kind of being exposed and then being rejected by others and then isolated from relationships. Wow. <laughs> And there's a lot, to, like you said, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and in the, one of the other questions I wanted to ask, talk to you today about was, um, in what ways does an honor shame missiology serve as a compass helping um, Christians navigate the majority world? And um, yeah, can we just start, maybe just start with that one? Yeah. Um, I think we kind of touched on some of these. Um you know, in terms of evangelism, uh, in terms of theology, in terms of relationships, we've covered a lot of those topics. I think another large one um, is this idea of leadership and Mm. what power and authority looks like. And so I'm sure we've confronted this. um, You know, we see it in kind of secular political leaders. um, And so they use their position or their authority or their name in order to kind of command respect and to, um, you know, make sure other people kiss the ring, so to speak. Yeah. And, um, pe- you know, believe people who are grow up in that context and then become leaders within a church, that's kind of the only model of leadership and authority and power that they know. Wow. Um, and so it's, it's very deeply rooted. And I think part of it can be helpful. Part of it's good. Often these pastors are very um, good about it. They kind of become a father figure for the whole congregation and they provide for their needs. Um, but then there's a downside to that. Often they're very stressed by that and um, burdened by that. And then they kind of expect um, high levels of, you know, loyalty, obedience, and allegiance to them um, as well. They kind of become a, you know, it becomes a very hierarchical type of structure. Um, so, I mean, I think in this way, you know, this is essentially what the cross does is it redefines honor uh, in an incredible way. You know, you look at Philippians 2 and the one who is most exalted all of a sudden makes himself the most shamed and the most lowered. Um, and that is for the sake of bringing salvation to us. Um, and so I think of Jesus's model of leadership um, in that way, or his use of power, uh, voluntarily giving that up and going all the way to the cross, which is, you know, the ultimate shame, right? Yeah. To be exposed, naked, isolated by your fellow countrymen, by your family, uh, to be alone. Um, and then obviously to die and to be utterly um, defiled and um, on the cross. And so there's levels of shame that Jesus faces on that, but he does so in a way that brings life um, to other people and kind of and unleashes salvation into the world through that. Um, so would they so see that, from if you, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. So from a, an honor, shame, and from that perspective, what Jesus did, is that seen as the ultimate sacrifice or would that be seen as a weakness or is there a, a lens there? Could you just unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, remember the early church was dealing with this as well. It was foolishness. It was a stumbling block. Um, and it, it was this perennial issue of, wait a second, how could someone who is so shamefully crucified become the lord and become the ruler over all things right? right um and so the early church was constantly having to explain that and honestly it takes a spiritual revelation um i it's not something that makes sense at a human level but as we have new hearts to perceive that as the veil is removed we start understanding god's glory was perfectly revealed in the face of christ through that um so, I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that is part of it. Um, the early churches faced that. And I think we have kind of 
remove that element of the cross and we just view it as purely, um, you know, a, a legal mechanism or instrument of, you know, he got, um, Jesus was killed as a punishment for our sins, but yeah, he not only took our guilt, but he took our shame upon him. Um, and I think that can, you know, add to the, the fuller salvific sense of the cross and what it does for us. Good. That's good. So in this, in our conversation, what do you see as a biblical vision for the local church and, and an honor shame context? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say that the church becomes the new honor community of God. Um, and, <laughs> in which we start to um, replicate and uh, bestow God's honor upon one another within the local church. And so in Romans 12, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. It's interesting. This is the only time that Christians are actually exhorted to compete with one another. (laughs) So Paul says, you know, whoever gives honor, you know, you have to make sure you kind of, or, you know, try to outdo one another. Um, And so, it's this way that we um, are able to make the cross real and we embody, you know, the, the Christ ethic by serving one another, loving one another, and setting aside a lot of our previous constructions of honor. Hmm. You know, uh, often we have, you know, whether it be based on race, uh, whether it be based on gender, economic status, um, all those things become secondary um, in light of the cross and that, so that we there becomes a new humanity. There becomes a new family. And we relate to our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters, uh, as someone who is honored in Christ. And we therefore give them the honor that, that they deserve. We treat them as ambassadors of the king because they represent uh, Christ the Messiah in that way. Hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, obviously that's going to look different. I know I'm talking right. a little bit theoretical. And for every church, you know, the way it expresses honor is going to look different in every culture. Um, But that's the idea is, okay, we are to embody a new honor and we are supposed to um, give that honor to one another here. That's good. That's good. I wanted to ask you too, obviously the world is becoming um, very diverse and people from the majority world are coming to the West and maybe even coming to, I don't know, Wallyford, West Virginia. Um, How does it, would this, would that, would those same principles, or is that a default system or, or tendency honor shame? Or when you get in a new culture, would that dramatically go away? Um, yeah, I don't know if you just have some thoughts on that. Maybe somebody's listened to this and they live in America and they, they want to reach out and they, somebody's come from the majority world and this is really clicking in their head and they're thinking, wow, this is, this is what I needed to hear. How can they engage with and have an authentic relationship with someone from the majority world? Yeah. Yeah. And your first question about, um, you know, when someone relocates to a different cultural context, um, honor and shame do not go away. Um, Hmm. They are very deeply embedded in people. um, And it will probably be the second or third generation, even maybe even the fourth, um, that is uh, fully removed from the honor-shame context. So the first and second generation are always going to be dealing with these issues um, in whatever cultural context that they go into. Um, And so granted, um, that's how they're hardwired to react and to interpret the world and to to establish relationships. But obviously, um, 
they need to learn a different cultural system for operating. And so I think like many of, uh, like you and me, who grew up in one context, we have certain values, and we go overseas into a new context, yet at our core, we still interpret reality the same way that has changed slowly, but mm. we, we can kind of go back and forth and we learn how to navigate back and forth, often without realizing it, or we see it in our kids who can just yeah. instantly hop back and forth, right? And I think That's it's the truth. same way, you know, it's the, it's the second generation of kids that can hop back and forth. You know, the, um, they're in their home and all the, you know, it'll be um, very different, but when they're outside in public, they yeah. interact in a much more, say, Western or individualistic way. Um, sure. But yeah, on your question of, you know, building relationships, we talked about that kind of the, um, I think kind of um, recognizing honor and allowing a place for that and seeking ways to honor honor people or to receive honor from them as well would be my kind of first start recommended starting point. Good deal. One last question for you and then we can, yeah. I'm going to ask you to pray for the audience. Um, how, how does a Christian leader overcome shame and discern with genuine humility? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think as a lot of people, um, start learning about honor and shame, I mentioned, um, this about myself is that we often view it as, okay, that's a problem that they have, and I'm going to learn about it as a ministry tool to direct towards other people. Um, but what you hit on is a huge issue, is that we can't proclaim a message that we haven't embodied and lived ourselves. Um, and I think especially for a lot of us who are in full-time ministry, um, there we can be really exposed to layers of shame, because think about shame, it's essentially not living up to a certain ideal. Um, and there's often lots of ideals um, in our line of work in terms of how our family should be, how our kids should be, what type of person we should be, how educated we should be, what standard of living we should live at, and all this. And uh, nobody can live up to all of those ideals, and we feel a, a sense of shame from that as if we are uh, deficient. Um, and rightly so, I think anyone who is a messenger of this you know, of the gospel, rightly so, feels deficient. You know, uh, Paul talks about this fact that we carry this glory in jars of clay. We are broken. We, we are very weak and we are fragile. And I think we must learn how to appropriate the honor of Christ for our shame. But another way that our shame becomes the very means for proclaiming the gospel. Um, as we wrestle with that and as in the midst of our shame, as we depend upon God for his identity for his glory, we embody that and we appropriate it in a way that we just live it out. And so therefore the gospel that, you know, th this great news that Jesus takes our shame isn't just a, a theological idea that I'm trying to communicate to people, but it's a reality that, that I live out and just sharing with other people in a natural way. Um, and so it, 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 you know, so then at that point, our message aligns with our lives or our lives uh, start still with our message. Yeah. In that way. Good deal. Good deal. Jason, I really appreciate you taking your time today. How could, some, how can someone access or get, um, in, in your writings? I mean, I, I downloaded your, the, one of your books from Amazon, but could you just share the, where people could go to find and maybe share, um, your writings so that, cause I, this was meant to be an introductory conversation and to get people interested in the, in the, in the subject. And then they could go a little further in their, on their own. Um, could you just share that with the audience? Yeah. Uh, I've written several books. Those are available at Amazon. 
Uh, but the best place to go is my website, honorshame.com. Mm-hmm. And it's spelled the American way, not the British way, honor. Okay. Um, but honorshame.com. And that's where I have um, a list of all the kinds of resources and articles um, and videos that are all available for free. And so whether you want to learn by yourself or if someone's leading a training, you know, a team training or a short-term, uh, short-term team training, um, there's plenty of resources that people can use um, uh, for that purpose as well. So honorshame.com is the best uh, port of entry. And you did, you developed like a tool or something where somebody could, we could at least, I, I, I'm pretty sure I took it and it kind of shows you what your tendencies are. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's called the culture test.com. Um, and it's a, it, it's not meant to be a highly scientific thing. It's more of just kind of an orientation and intro to it. But yeah, you answer 25 questions and it kind of uh, plots your uh, culture along this uh, axis of guilt, shame, or fear culture. Yeah. I, honestly, I found it fascinating. So I don't know if it's scientific based or not, but it was, it was very, uh, it, it, yeah, it was, it was fascinating to me. My wife and I both took it and anyway, okay. we, we really appreciate it. Jason, could you pray for, pray for the audience that God will use, um, your wisdom and your insight and what you shared with us today, that it will be something that we put into action. It would not be something we just have a, uh, some new head knowledge, but we will take what you shared with us today, um, so that mm-hmm. we can um, proclaim uh, the love of Jesus Christ to those we come in contact with. Yeah. Yeah, Lord, we thank you for your glory. Uh, we thank you for um, the fact that you are on mission. You are redeeming the world and you are bringing, you are demonstrating and bringing your love uh, through us to the world, Lord. And so we thank you that you have redeemed us and that you have pulled us out of this pit of shame and um, bestowed a new honor upon us and brought us into your family, Lord. And so help us to receive that um, in our hearts. And whenever we feel accused, whenever we feel isolated or unworthy, um, pray that your grace would cover all of that for us Lord, in our hearts. And also pray for um, us as we share this uh, with people, Lord. I pray um, in this day today, God, that you would give us opportunities to share um, these ideas uh, with people, Lord. Bring them into our life and help us just to proclaim truth and proclaim your truth to people, Lord. That brings about, um, yeah, your glory and ever increasing and expanding in this life. And so we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.